in Holcomb, Kansas, just west of Garden City. This is the house in which the Herbert Clutter family lived and the house in which they were murdered. This isn't something that happens to real people in real life. This can't be real. This case occurred on November the 15th, 1959, when a father, a mother, and their two teenage children were murdered, bound and gagged, and shot in the head with a shotgun. Since I was a teenager, I've been obsessed with In Cold Blood. I really believe that In Cold Blood deeply informed who I am as a filmmaker. Hello, and welcome to a special podcast for Cold-Blooded, The Clutter Family Murders, a two-part docuseries airing on Sundance TV. Featuring never-before-seen footage and brand-new testimonials, the series is an in-depth examination of the 1959 murders that forever changed the small town of Holcomb, Kansas. I'm Nick Dell with Sundance TV, and joining me to talk about his work on the docuseries is filmmaker Joe Berlinger. Joe is an award-winning documentarian behind such films as The Paradise Lost Trilogy and Metallica, Some Kind of Monster. Welcome, Joe. Hey, thanks for having me. So I'm curious, first off, what drew you to tell what is the first major documentary about the Clutter family murders. Of course, it was famously depicted in Truman Cody's In Cold Blood and in the film In Cold Blood. But what drew you to tell this tale? Yeah, quite a few things. Um, First of all, I'm totally obsessed with always have been with the book in cold blood as well as the movie that was based on on the book that came out shortly thereafter both the book and the movie were genre busters in their time since i was a teenager i've been obsessed with in cold blood i remember reading it in high school and loving it so much which i never did it was the first book i ever after reading something that you had to read in high mm. school i went and read it again over the summer there's something about that book that spoke deeply to me. And in fact, you know, in more ways than one might think, I mean, I really believe that In Cold Blood deeply informed who I am as a filmmaker and set me on a certain path. You know, my 25 years in filmmaking has largely been characterized by true crime. I mean, I, ha- I have an ambivalent feeling about that label, true crime, which we can get into in yeah. a minute, because I don't think of myself necessarily as a true crime filmmaker. Uh, but I've covered a lot of crime over the years. And so Capote had a direct impact on me as a filmmaker in terms of my aesthetics and the kind of subject matter that I gravitate towards. Some listeners out there may know Brothers Keeper, which, yeah. you know, this is the 25th anniversary of Brothers oh, wow. Keeper, which is, you know, in its day was considered kind of a groundbreaking film. And, you know, it's hard to talk about yourself without sounding like you're bragging. So I'm not I'm not trying to brag. I'm just trying to contextualize what drew me to this story. But Brothers Keeper has been, you know, credited with kind of pushing the envelope of what a nonfiction film could be. And at the time... I was deeply aware and conscious of Capote, just like Capote was synthesizing narrative technique with journalism to create this new thing called the nonfiction novel, Mm. which didn't exist before Capote kind of created that genre. That's what I likened to what we were doing with Brothers Keeper that I made with the late Bruce Sanofsky who sadly passed away a few years ago. But what Bruce and I wanted to do was to basically create what we called the nonfiction feature film. Now, 
We are not the only people to have coined that phrase, so I don't want to overstate that. But we were consciously emulating what Capote was doing. You know, he was synthesizing novelistic writing techniques with traditional journalism. And that, to me, is what Brothers Keeper was all about, was taking a nonfiction subject in documentary form and pushing the envelope of what it could be what a documentary could be. And in fact, some of the things that that film is known for are things we take for granted today, Mm. but were kind of criticized in the day when the film came out. I mean, even though that film, Brothers Keeper, a lot of younger filmmakers have cited that film as the film that made them want to become filmmakers, like Morgan Spurlock, Brett Morgan, Simon Kilmurray, a lot of filmmakers cite that film is a real influence because of its style. And so what do I mean by a nonfiction feature film? You know, how is that different than like what documentaries were up until that point? And that is, it is the blending of narrative and journalistic technique. And that sounds so commonplace today, but back in the day, things like having an original music score throughout the film by traditional documentarians was kind of frowned upon because, you know, you're not supposed to manipulate people's emotions, and yet Brothers Keeper had this amazing music score. We consciously chose a murder trial that has natural dramatic structure, a beginning, a middle, an end, rising and falling action, which is the classic Aristotelian definition of what is drama. We consciously chose to give that story dramatic structure as it's unfolding, things like selectively withholding information until the right dramatic moment. The film had this incredible evocative cinematic shooting style. It had an opening title sequence, all of which today are like, you know, very commonplace. The other thing that I borrowed from Capote or we borrowed from Capote when we were trying to evolve our filmmaking style was the embrace of ambiguity. You know, Brothers Keeper raises lots of questions but doesn't answer them. Now, all of the things I've just said, you know, a younger person might say, well, that's in every documentary today. But back then it was kind of new. And so my embrace of Capote really fed my aesthetic desire to push documentary in a new form. It also gave me a preoccupation with crime itself. Mm. And the bulk of my film, whether it's Brothers Keeper or Whitey, you know, my Whitey Bulger film or the three-part Paradise Lost trilogy or the Sundance series, of course, called Blooded, most of my work has been in the crime space. Where I think I've departed a little bit from kind of just being a true crime filmmaker, the thing about In Cold Blood that's interesting and what I wanted to explore in this series is the fact that it actually is the book that launched the true crime genre. Yeah. And so I'm a little uncomfortable just being thought of as a true crime filmmaker because I think I've learned something from my deep dive into Capote, which is that I wanted to marry my interest in crime with some social justice. Mm. With Paradise Lost, when we saw that three kids were being railroaded and convicted of something that we thought they were innocent of, that's when I realized that, and why I kind of don't love the true crime label for me. I think it's, you know, I'm much more of a social justice filmmaker who spends a lot of time in crime. I think with Paradise Lost, we kind of married this true crime focus with an interest in using film to expose abuses in the criminal justice system to give a voice to the voiceless. It's actually kind of the inverse of what Capote was doing. Capote, you know, and we're somewhat critical of this in the series that we're going to show on Sundance, even though I revere that book, on a certain level, 
one of the problems with the true crime genre and one of the problems with this book, and I say problems in quotes because it's a masterpiece that I revere, is its emphasis on the perpetrators Mm, uh and kind of making the perpetrators in a perverse way the heroes. On the one hand, what's brilliant about the book is it humanizes them you empathize with them when they're hung at the end of the uh, the story. Uh, you feel something for them. But this isn't just fiction. This is mm. a real story. It's people's lives. It's yeah. people's lives. And the victims of this crime, the Clutter family, have always been treated as a side note. And they were quite angry with Capote for the most part. And so for me, it was an interesting opportunity to explore that phenomenon, to explore what the family itself, who's never appeared before in a documentary, what they thought, the impact on the town, the impact on the Clutter family, what were the actual facts of the case. Because I think there's a danger in glorifying the criminal. And in fact, it has spawned this genre today that we call true crime, in which criminality is often glorified. Mm -hmm. And I think as somebody who has spent a lot of time in the criminal justice system, dealing with victims or dealing with people who are victims of the system, you know, criminality is not something you want to glorify. Again, I revere the book and most of the most of the documentary is very complimentary about the making of In Cold Blood and equally complimentary about how groundbreaking the actual movie that Richard Brooks did. But the focus is on the original crime and the Clutter family itself. Yeah, and there's interesting parallels between Paradise Lost and Capote's relationship with Perry Smith. And you were working on the Paradise Lost films for so long. There must be similarities in your mind in terms of a relationship that you maybe developed with the West Memphis Three, but of course it's a very different kind of case. Yeah, I mean it's it's interesting. I, you know, I think Capote Capote was tortured by his relationship with Dick and Perry, as you see in the documentary. Truman, who had a particular affinity for Perry Smith, um, but certainly had a relationship with both of them. His book was ready to go, and yet he needed these guys to be executed for him to have an ending. And for six long years, with this manuscript in hand, he's waiting for the execution. And it was torturous for him because he was very conflicted. He had, he had this growing relationship with, with these guys, was in regular contact with them, and yet he's literally waiting for them to be executed so he could, you know, he could finish the book. And, you know, as Gerald Clark says in the documentary, be careful what you wish for, because it was a very torturous journey for him that took a lot out of him. He he never wrote another novel after In Cold Blood. He became addicted to drugs and alcohol, and he died at the age of 59. And a lot of that, I believe, has to do with that relationship that he had with Perry Smith. And so the what I learned from that and what I've tried to bring into my own filmmaking is a very rigid philosophy that, you know, the filmmaker-subject relationship is a very slippery slope, but you can't pretend you're friends with your subject. You know, when you get into the editing room, you have to put the blinders on and be loyal only to the truth, to the truth as you see it, to the story you want to tell. And this has, you know, bubbled up in a, in a number of ways for me on Paradise Lost in particular. It's a good reference you raise. Um, but not in the ways you might think. In Paradise Lost, when we first arrived in West Memphis, Arkansas, in June of 93, it was one week after the three teenagers who would later become known as the West Memphis Three had just been arrested. They had been arrested for this 
horrific crime of taking three eight-year-old boys into the woods and slaughtering them in a devil-worshipping sacrifice. That's what the prosecution was alleging. And so we arrived within a week of the arrest. The trial was not going to be for another seven months. We spent seven months embedded in that community prior to the start of the trial. And the first three months or so, we were mainly just hanging out with the victims' families. Mm -hmm. And we had no reason to believe we weren't making a film about these terrible teenagers who had done this horrible thing. The prosecution and the police department was saying on a scale of 1 to 10, the evidence was an 11. The uh, families of the victims all, of course, believed these were the killers. And the press... You know, 100% of the press down there was convinced that these guys were guilty. And so we had no reason to think otherwise. And so the first few months, we were developing very close relationships to the families of the victims who went through the most unimaginable thing Mm -hmm. anybody could go through, the loss of a child to a horribly violent and cruel satanic ritual killing. I mean, that's what we all thought. And so we convinced these families to... um, allow us in to tell their stories and we said things like which we believed at the time that you know we thought these guys were just horrible human beings and that the story that we could tell would help other families you know deal with tragedy or other families maybe see the warning signs of you know teenagers that might end up doing something terrible um and so that's what we believed Mm. Um, but it became something else but entirely. But the film became something yeah. else entirely because over time we became convinced that the West Memphis Three were innocent. And so when Paradise Lost actually came out, the parents of the victims were horrified, felt betrayed by us, felt we had... And I understood, you know. I mean, we tried to explain that, you know, the truth took us to a certain place. But if you're a victim of a crime, of course, your healing process, although you can never really heal. You know, I don't like the word closure when it mm-hmm. comes to violent crime. But the healing process is predicated on knowing who did it. And so they had this belief that the right people were in prison. And here this film comes along, which shakes that foundation to its core. And so they hated us for mm-hmm. years. And that was a very painful experience. And it taught me that you can't pretend that you're friends with your subject. Uh, you have to, you know, you have to develop a relationship and it's a very slippery slope. You know, you don't, you know, you, you use all your charms to convince somebody to allow a film to be made, you know, and so some people can confuse that, especially people in need with friendship and you have to be, and it doesn't mean you can't become friends with people you make films about there. You know, I'm in touch with many people I've made films with, but while you're making the film, you must honor the truth. And that's something I, I learned on Paradise Lost. And I think that phenomenon of becoming too close to your subjects mm-hmm. is literally what killed Truman Capote and literally caused him to be so conflicted that he never wrote another novel again. Um, the other interesting relationship issue that happened in Paradise Lost, since you referenced that, um, you know, at some point in Paradise Lost, the stepfather of one of the victims gave us a knife as a gift which was a bizarre knife a bizarre gift rather and when we opened up the knife in the hinge we saw blood on it and so we were given this bizarre gift of a bloody knife uh and left to wonder what that meant and and we really had quite a moral dilemma do we turn this knife over to the police and violate that relationship that trust that had been built 
in doing so we might possibly cause the termination of our film because mm -hmm. you know re films like this are based on relationships and you work very hard to have the doors open but very quickly those doors can shut if there's no trust and so at the end of the day we decided that friendship and loyalty and relationships and the continuation even of a film are secondary to being a good citizen and if we were in receipt of a knife that might possibly be a murder weapon we had a moral obligation to turn it over and so we turned it over but again all of these experiences have forged in me this realization that you cannot become friends with your subjects mm -hmm. and in fact I mean it's interesting Janet Malcolm wrote you know several decades ago it's a very thin book that was once a New Yorker article that I think anybody in journalism or documentary should read it's called The Journalist and the Murderer and she basically postulates that you know the 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 very nature of the filmmaker uh subject relationship is inherently corrupt and that the you know the 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 reporter is going to stab his subject in mm. the back to get what they want i think that's a little extreme but i think you know my rule is you know i'll treat everybody every subject with dignity um, but you can't be friends with them while you're making the film. And the illusion of friendship sometimes is confusing for everybody. Does that journalistic distance, does that help you also dealing with your films, which are often about really horrific crimes? Are you able to separate that if you have a neutral journalistic stance? You know, for me, part of what I'm doing is not looking for the literal truth of a situation, but rather the emotional truth. That doesn't mean the emotional truth is not the real truth and that I'm avoiding the literal truth. Like Some people sometimes misunderstand what I'm saying, but I'm looking to present to the audience what is the experience that I am going through covering this story with all of its ambiguity. And, um, you know, in Brothers Keeper and Paradise Lost, you know, you are conflicted about the guilt or innocence about the people we're making a film about, just as we were conflicted about that and kept going back and forth. And we give a lot of power to the audience to come to their own conclusion. You know, in the early days, our films were criticized for not having a point of view, but my feeling is, you know, treat the audience like a jury and let them make the decision. Mm. Um, and so I think that approach allows you to not have the journalism get in the way of the relationships. You can you can have a relationship with your subject, you just can't confuse it as true friendship. It might develop into true friendship after the film is over. Um, again, I have, I'm friends, like anybody listening out there who happens to be a subject of my film that I'm <laughs> friends with, I don't want them to be offended. I have many friends that have grown out of my films, but you know, you cannot be friends with your subject while you're making your film because you need to go into the editing room and you need to turn all feelings of friendship away and focus on what is the emotional truth of the story that you're telling. And for Capote, no one had ever really done that, getting close to a murderer, and you could see how it tore him apart. It tortured him, yeah. Yeah, but there are interesting similarities. He spent a lot of time in West Memphis and got to know the townspeople there, and Capote got to know people in Holcomb, Kansas, and then, of course, the book came out, and that relationship changed. When you went to Holcomb, did you see that there was still some residual negative feelings about Truman Capote and about the film and the book. It's still, strangely enough, very present for these people. Um, you know, just like back then, there were many people who, you know, for example, Al Dewey, the lead investigator, and his wife, um, you know, developed a very nice relationship with um, Truman. In fact, that relationship um, 
really allowed him to actually do the work because he was given access to all sorts of documents. Um, So those people, uh, the Deweys and others, were very much in favor of what Capote was doing, and there was a lot of people where the doors just slammed in his face, and uh, people were not interested in what he was doing. And there were, when the book came out, there were a lot of people who were fascinated by it in that community, and a lot of people who were deeply offended by it, including the Clutter family. And I think, you know, and the Clutter family felt offended by it because of what they felt were misrepresentations in particular of, of Bonnie Clutter, mm-hmm. the wife. She was portrayed in a certain way that the family feels is highly inaccurate. Um, and I think a lot of those feelings continue today. There's a, it's, it's like two camps, you know, some who don't want, don't want Holcomb and Garden City to be remembered as the place of this terrible crime and other people who see the in- inevitability of it and think that the book, you know, brought some positive attention to, to an otherwise, you know, very negative event. Yeah. Why do you think some of the family members, the clutters, why do you think now they decided to talk about it? And how did you approach them too? Um, you know, I give a lot of credit to my amazing team. Kahani Cooperman and Allison Berg really worked very hard on that particular aspect. And I think together we were able to convince all the participants that this is a very serious project. It's the 50th anniversary. It's a story that still is fascinating to people. And that we were going to be the one project that wasn't deep diving into Capote. I mean, look, there have been, you know, in the last couple of years, there have been two movies about Capote. Of course, there's In Cold Blood, the movie. There have been other documentaries about Capote. This was going to be the documentary that really told the clutter story because the clutters, you know, the impact on them, the impact on the town, the aftermath of this horrible crime really has never been detailed before. So I think we were able to convince people of the integrity of the project. Yeah, and it's the first look at this murder that is not about the celebrity of it, really, about Capote in the sort of media circus of the town. But yet you still had some interesting insights on Capote. I found your photos of him in the house were really striking. Did you go to the house at all? You know, we weren't allowed to go in, but we were able to go shoot from afar. Mm -hmm. Uh, But I, I do miss the opportunity that we were not actually in the house. Does somebody live in the house still? Yeah. Oh, yeah, wow. Yeah. How did you go about getting a lot of the testimonies of like Dick Hickok and, and a lot of the archival footage? Because there's some incredible photos and film footage from the time. Yeah, no, I mean, I uh, because, um, you know, we didn't want to focus on just the Capote stuff. Mm-hmm. We wanted to dig deeper and actually get into the real nuts and bolts. Um, you know, early on, we knew that we had to dig deep, and we had a terrific archivist, um, Lizzie McGlynn, who's done several of my projects, plus the whole team. You know, we dug deeply and, you know, um, really set a high bar for wanting some really never-seen-before materials. So it's about just digging deep and building relationships. Some of it came from some of the participants in the film, and some of it came from some archives that nobody had dug up before. I felt it was really important to give people, if if we were going to do this, we couldn't rehash the same old story. We had to give something new. And I think there's there's a very new perspective about the crime, its impact, uh, the misconceptions that the book has generated, um, the hard feelings that the book has generated. Again, I revere the book, so we're not critical of the book itself. But, you know, we wanted to tell the underlying story instead of 
retelling what's been told before. And the key to that is getting access to all this great archival. Mm -hmm. And talking to relatives and friends of the murderers, even. That perspective was interesting. Were, Were people reluctant to talk about that? I mean, you know, no more than any other situation where you have to convince people to talk. But, um, you know, we all decided it was very important that this not be a documentary just full of random talking heads of scholars and educators and people who had an opinion and literary people who, to be featured in the documentary, you had to have some connection to the crime or to Capote. And so everybody who's interviewed for the show really is coming at it with a very first-hand account sort of perspective, and we thought that was important for the show. Yeah, I was very surprised that Dick Cavett wasn't in it, because if there's something about Truman Capote, Dick Cavett will talk about it. <laughs> That's true. Well, you know, some of some clips... That was refreshing. Some, yes, yes, exactly. We just, you know, we wanted, we wanted to see things that haven't been told before, you know, haven't been seen before. When you were in the town, was there anyone that you met during the course of the interviews that were, you know, your favorite interview person to talk to? Any relationships that you developed from the family members and various people you interviewed? Well, you know, I, I appreciate everyone who gave their time and who participated in the film. It's hard to single out anyone in particular. I just think everyone, you know, some people talked to us reluctantly. Others were more open. Um, but I think everybody felt like there was something to talk about if we focused on the aftermath of the crime and the aftermath of the book. You know, I think that's what we haven't seen before. And I'm curious about your research process for films like Paradise Lost and also for Cold-Blooded. When you got started, your team, what is the first thing you do in terms of getting archival footage, getting who you want to interview? Where does that process start? Well, different films have different processes. Um, You know, most of my films are cinema verite, which means we film a real story in the present tense as it's unfolding. And you don't have a lot of time to do research if you're capturing a real trial as it's happening. So the original Paradise Lost, we just kind of parachuted into Arkansas, camped out for months, and just tried to discover the story as it was unfolding. I liken that process to, you know, jumping out a window and hoping there's a mattress on the other side to catch you. You know, when you're making a film like that, you don't even know if you're going to get an ending, like whether you will actually complete the process. A film like Cold-Blooded, which is not typical of the kind of film I do, because normally I don't make films about past tense events, Mm. although interesting this year I did Intent to Destroy about the Armenian genocide that's coming out also in November, which is about the 1915 genocide of uh, 1.5 million Armenians on the eve of World War. War One, um, that was also in a historical film. But with Cold Blooded, you know, the process starts then with um, because it's not a present tense film in the sense that you're not following a present day story. Then it becomes about you know a massive research effort that my team puts together. You know, digging deeply into you know case files and you know what really happened and the detective work that really happened and you know digging into the biography of the players involved. So there is a massive research effort before we actually start to shoot it, which is kind of the opposite of Brothers Keeper, Paradise Lost, or the Tony Robbins film, where something is happening and you just you shoot it and you try to discover where the story is taking you. And then how do you shape it as you go along? If it's something that's based on history as well, do you you find your ends and your things that you're adding to it? Like, how do you shape it as it goes along? Our editors on the show did an amazing job, you know, so I give them a lot of credit, you know. uh, You know, you, you try things till they work. You know, we wanted to 
present the crime so that we wanted to give the audience the same journey that the detectives had, that it was a complete mystery, that we don't know who did it. You know, while the criminals are on the run, how is it that these pieces of evidence came together? So for me, it was very important to give the emotional feeling of what it was like to experience learning about the crime figuring out who did it, and then the impact that it had on the community and how Truman Capote then came into it, turned it into a book that kind of revolutionized the genre. Even though it's a past tense event, you want to organize the material so it unfolds in kind of almost a present tense way so that the audience experiences that same journey. But going back to the true crime genre, I mean, obviously you've had a big influence on the current craze we're in now, whether it's making a murderer or serial, and both in cold blood to then you could draw a line to brother's keeper and to paradise lost. Do you think like you were saying about keeping objective with your subject, do you think we're in danger of, of there's some level of gray areas with this filmmaking? Well, there's been such an explosion in true crime. It's even taken me by surprise. I mean, I, I actually have never been busier. I've been juggling multiple projects for the last couple of years because there's such a fascination with true crime. I think the danger is making criminals into heroes. I think the danger is just kind of drilling into crime without any other social impact benefit. So I try to look for stories, you know, in which shining a light on the crime can have a larger impact. Obviously, Paradise Lost is the most notable example. You know, three films over two decades were key to galvanizing support to get these guys out of prison. Um, But, you know, earlier this year, I did a show for Discovery ID in which we profiled uh, this guy named Richard Glossop, who's on Oklahoma's death row, and we think he's innocent, and the state has tried to kill him three times. You know, I also did a show this summer called Gone, the Forgotten Women of Ohio, and that grew out of my desire to kind of give a voice to the voiceless. Basically, these parents of these prostitutes who were drug addicted had gone missing or were killed, and the parents were complaining that because of their lifestyle of their daughters, the, because they were prostitutes and often used drugs, that the police weren't paying attention to these crimes, and I felt everybody deserves justice no matter what you do with your time. Um, and so that was kind of the impulse of doing that show. Um, and for this, you know, the deep dive into Capote is not to celebrate the novel, but rather to go back to the original crime, to give some closure to the family who has been, has felt victimized by the popular media sensationalizing a terrible event in their life, and by making the criminals somehow into these perverse heroes, which is kind of now a staple of the genre. So I think on the one hand, true crime is, has always been a rich area of storytelling, but without sensitivity to the victims, I think, you know, it's a bit of a slippery slope. Yeah. And what do you think? I mean, because obviously Paradise Lost was so important in getting the West Memphis Three out of jail. And that seems to be this trend now of there's so many documentaries where it's almost like investigative journalism, social justice, like actually proving that there's, you know, problems in the justice system. What do you think of what you've created in a sense or helped to create? Well, I helped to create because, of course, there's also Errol Morris's Thimble Line helped um, Randall Dale Evans, you know, get out of his death sentence as well. You know, look, I think I think we live in very troubling times. The criminal justice system is deeply flawed. 
some experts estimate as much as 5% of the people in prison, you know, don't deserve to be there. And I think film has proven to be a very strong medium from making a, a murderer to Paradise Lost, Thin Blue Line, The Staircase. There have been, you know, a lot of projects that have focused on problems in the justice system. So I think, I think that's a great thing. Of course, with the proliferation of outlets, you know, which is good and bad, with the good in the sense that there's lots of opportunities for filmmakers, bad that it's harder than ever to really attract a huge audience, and you need a huge audience for the authorities to listen to what's going on if you want to right a wrong. They need to feel like enough people are banging the drum. So we live in a time where alternative facts and fake news are you know, buzzwords to discredit the media. So, you know, I think we live in very challenging times for our work to really cut through. There have never been more opportunities for filmmakers today because of how many outlets there are. The predisposition towards these kinds of films that expose wrongfully convicted people or problems in the criminal justice system, there's never been more opportunity to make these projects. But with so many projects being made with audiences being so fragmented and with an administration that is starting to try to sensitize or bully people into thinking nothing is true. I think the message is going to be harder and harder to be persuasive as a, like, I'm not interested in just making a good film that people like as a film. If I choose a subject to shine a light on, I want action to be taken. Richard Glossop on death row in Oklahoma is a travesty. I did that TV show because I want people to tell their uh, representatives uh, that there's a guy in Oklahoma who's about to be executed for something he didn't do. That was my feeling with Paradise Lost. I choose these subjects because I want social impact. I think social impact becomes harder and harder when too many projects are being done, when the audience is so fragmented and you have an administration that's conditioning people not to trust anything that's coming from the media. Don't miss episode two of this podcast, which features part two of our interview with Joe Berlinger. And be sure to watch Sundance TV's docuseries, Cold-Blooded, The Clutter Family Murders. Go to the Sundance TV site and apps for more info. Thanks for listening.